If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When it came to his public persona, Charles Dickens was a master of managing his personal brand. In fact, almost everything we know about him comes from one biography written by his friend, John Forster. But if you dig a little deeper, as Helena Kelly has done in her new book, The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens, strange biographical inconsistencies begin to emerge. Ellie Cawthorne spoke to Helena about the new theory she puts forward on everything from Dickens' family and childhood to his sex life, and how they paint a much darker picture of the author's life. Thanks for coming on the History Extra podcast, Helena. Having me. Your new book is called The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. So we're going to tackle some of those lies in depth in this conversation, but give us a sense of what we're going to be talking about. What lies have you uncovered in your research? Because it's quite the list, isn't it? It's kind of amazing, actually, to discover how often Dickens liked to fib about things. And some of them are, some of them seem to be, certainly, like completely pointless. There doesn't seem to be any reason why he's doing them. I do a lot of newspaper archive research. And the more of that I did, the more I started finding all these things that we just had no idea about, um, that Dickens had very, very, very clearly either deliberately not told people, um, deliberately never mentioned, or actually like 
outright lied about. There's some seemingly incredibly minor stuff. There's some actually really quite major stuff. It's almost, it's almost as if he couldn't stop himself. He clearly was very, very anxious about his image, about what people would think of him, about what, what everyone would say. And, and to be fair, there was a, a really kind of, uh, I think, overwhelming press interest, public interest in his, in his life and in his work from kind of really early on. It must have been, must have been quite stressful, actually. So a lot of what we know about Dickens, I didn't realise this, but a lot of what we know about Dickens comes from a biography that was written by a close associate of him called John Forster. Could you tell us about that biography and what it gets wrong and, and how it was made? So John Forster was Dickens's basically his literary agent, what, what we'd now call a literary agent, although he didn't, he didn't really have a financial interest. He just like did all the stuff a literary agent would do. So he kind of, you know, he discussed ideas with Dickens and he'd read first drafts of his work. So they, they became friends uh, quite early on, basically just as Dickens was starting out. And they remained friends for the whole of Dickens's life, which is quite unusual. Dickens has this, he has a, a tendency to kind of pick people up and drop them. He falls out with a lot of people, but he never fell, he never actually fell out with Forster. The other thing is that, is that Forster was, uh, he was left as Dickens's literary executor. So he gets basically all his papers and um, with the expectation pretty clearly that what he was going to do was write a biography. Like this is, this is clearly what, what Dickens basically lined him up for. And he'd been sort of feeding him little bits of information for about 25 years before he died. And so about 18 months after Dickens's death, Forster starts publicising the fact that he's, he's going to do the first volume of this, this biography. And it essentially tells everyone this amazing story about Dickens's childhood, how, oh, his father went to debtor's prison and he had to go and work in the blacking factory. And it was like, deeply humiliating for him. What Forster manages to do is to reposition Dickens as a kind of, you know, tragic figure, essentially, as someone that we should feel sympathy for. And that hadn't actually been the case when Dickens died. So when Dickens died, this is sort of three threefold thing that happens when Dickens dies. He dies and everyone's like, oh no, he's dead. We'll never got, get to know what happens at the end of Edmund Drood. Oh, it's tragic, blah, blah, blah. And then there's this outrage over his will, in the terms of his will. Dickens' will is very, it's very, very surprising, actually, because we're so used to the idea that his secret affair with Ellen Turner, the young, young, sexy actress that he left his wife for. We've been told so many times that this was something that he was desperately keen to keep secret. But it's actually a real surprise to find that she is the first beneficiary in his will. Not only did he name her, he also was really snide about his wife in, in, in the will. There's no kind of nice comments to her. There's no like, I'm sorry we broke up. It sucked. The public reaction to that was that people were absolutely furious because he'd lied, obviously, about having this affair with Ellen when, when his marriage broke down. He, of course, outright denied that this had happened. And then he's admitting to everyone that actually, oh, yeah, it did. And then kind of 18 months later comes Forster's biography. And everyone's like, oh, no, poor Dickens. No one knew this about him. Oh, this explains everything. So, I mean, it's a kind of genius bit of reputational management 
in a way. So I do want to return to Dickens' sex life later in this episode. It's not something I thought I'd be saying. But before we do, I wonder if we could talk about his childhood. As you say, Forster's biography created this sense of, you know, he's the boy done good. He came from nothing. And, and these scenes that we see in, in books like Little Dorrit in the debtor's prison, maybe they drew on his real life. Is that the story that you found in your research? Little Dorrit and the, and, and the debtor's prison, absolutely. Like his father absolutely did get into debt, um, was imprisoned, imprisoned in, in the Marshall Sea. It was obviously an awful traumatic time for everybody. But the other bit of the story, which is that Dickens was sort of sent off to work in this terrible backing factory by the river. And this is like this, the, the iron sank deep into his soul and it kind of never really came out. This is, this is the shaping trauma of his life, basically. It's a little less clear that that actually happened. Certainly that it happened at the same time. The timings are, are really, really difficult to kind of pin down. But there are a lot of things that we now know happened during the period he's meant to have been working at the Blacking Factory, connected to the Blacking Factory, that he doesn't seem to remember. Right. So the, the Blacking Factory, it made, it made boot polish, shoe polish, which is actually like its big business in the 19th century. And one of the people who decided to kind of get involved in the, the you know, this, this wonderful, rich area of business was one of Dickens's step cousins. So his auntie married a surgeon in the army who already had a family of six kids. Her new husband, uh, whose, whose surname was Lamott, he was probably the godfather to Dickens's, one of Dickens's younger siblings. And it, it, it was a close relationship and certainly one of the step cousins, it said, moved in with them when they moved to London. It becomes very close. And so anyway, when another of these cousins had bought into this shoe polish business. But there are a lot of things that Dickens doesn't seem to remember, even though we now know that they happened. So, for example, kind of other partner in the business drops down dead in a shop, like literally keels over. And it's quite big news in the newspapers. They have to have a coroner's inquest and so on. Dickens doesn't seem to have mentioned this to Forster at all, even though he spent a long time detailing this part of his life. All the kind of dates and things that he mentions don't quite add up. It was really surprising how much, how many gaps there were. There's an awful lot of stuff in it that kind of doesn't add up. And when you actually look at what Dickens's supposedly later schoolfellows say, they are all remembering him starting school earlier. The consensus seems to be that he was at school, he wasn't in the Blacking Factory, and he doesn't remember an awful lot of things that you would have thought would have been kind of, would have been quite major. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So what's your theory about all of this? Is it that Dickens maybe didn't work there, but he put it in his biography to kind of make himself seem more a man of the people? The conclusion I kind of came to, though, the, the more the more of these lies and little fibs and things I started uncovering, is that actually Dickens, he had a sort of MO for managing pieces of information that he didn't necessarily want people to to uncover. And that was that if anyone seemed to be kind of getting close to uncovering it, he'd give them loads of extra kind of extraneous information. If there was a rumour about, I don't know, say his mental health, which which happens um, later on when he's writing on the twist, he would... Talk about how there were, oh, half a dozen rumours about, you know, he'd gone mad or he'd gone bankrupt or he'd gone to America. And to distract people from the fact that actually only one of those rumours was really active and only one of those stories was actually being talked about by other people. Now, the only reason that Dickens told Forster any of this stuff about the Blacking Factory was because Forster had been told by someone else that Dickens at one point worked for this blacking factory. That was what led Forster to kind of start asking Dickens about this. And then Dickens comes out with this huge, long story. Lots of lovely detail about rats and he had to eat all these like stale rolls for his breakfast and so on. So there's lots of beautiful, dare one say it, novelistic detail. This obviously, I mean, brings us on to one of the big issues with, with Dickens for modern readers, which is that at times he is horrifically anti-Semitic. And the thing is that these step-cousins, the step-uncle, they were Jewish and they had sort of more or less abandoned Judaism, but the family was definitely originally Jewish. It's not necessarily a, a nice reason to be articulating, but I think possibly the likeliest reason for Dickens to have splurged all this extra information at Forster was because he didn't want Forster to find out that these relatives were Jewish. He gave him a wonderful story instead that doesn't necessarily have a sort of perfect relation to the truth. That's a really interesting idea and quite uncomfortable. Something else that you have uncovered when you've been digging into Dickens's childhood is a story about his sister. 
that perhaps doesn't tally up with what has previously been believed. Can you tell us about what your ideas surrounding that are? Dickens was, um, he was one of quite a big family. So he has one older sister and then um, a, a series of, of younger siblings. The boy that's born after him dies very, very early on of um, what what it what in the um, newspaper announcement is called water on the brain, so so hydrocephalus. And uh, traditional biographies will tell you that he he also lost another sibling when she was very young, so uh, his, his younger sister Harriet. And the suggestion that that people have tended to make is that she must have died when she was a baby because he kind of never he never talks about her. But actually, it turns out, I'm, only, I, I, I'm not the first person to discover this, although it hasn't come into the mainstream. She died when she was nine, so when Charles was about 15. This is a really interesting one, right? Because obviously anyone who's read, say, Dombey and Son will remember that in that novel you have um, the, the, the heroine, aged about 15, loses her younger brother, who's then aged about nine and it's actually it's very sort of it's very lovingly and kind of you know uh, affectingly described but it's also it's also one of those scenes that people tend to critics tend to talk of as being kind of oh this is just dickens's like dreadful sentimentalism like he loves a death scene with a child so actually it turns out that this is this is basically autobiographical like there's no way if you age 15 have lost a a, a nine-year-old sibling that you can write about a 15-year-old character losing a light and that, and have that not that that's absolutely coming from a really, really personal place. But the strange thing is that despite writing about that in, in his fiction, he never mentions Harriet outside it. So he never mentions her by name. There's this sort of really strange letter, actually. There'd been a lot of newspaper stories about how, oh, when he was um, when he was writing Oliver Twist, one of the young heroines in that was based on his sister-in-law. But that one of the American newspapers had kind of taken this story and kind of really garbled it and said it was his sister. And this guy, this fan, wrote to him and said, "Oh, I really spoke to me because I I lost my sister too." And Dickens sent him this really kind of odd reply where he's like, "Oh yeah, it wasn't my sister I lost. It was not a sister of my own I lost." And to it seems a very a very strange thing to do when he actually did have a sister. It would have been very easy to kind of say face and you know take this sympathy that this man was offering him. He's a very kind and thoughtful letter writer, even if he has issues in other parts of his life. But this time he's like absolutely he kind of shuts it down, even though he is by omission. Right, he's kind of lying. Now that's a sort of lie and. As to why he lied about her, again, another uncomfortable moment here, as is the case, um, say, with Jane Austen. So Jane Austen has a sibling who never gets mentioned. And we know that he was disabled. He had had some form of, of disability. And that is the likeliest reason for people not to mention a legitimate relative. Forster knew Dickens' family. He, like, he, knew, he knew his siblings, he knew his parents. And he certainly seems to have been under the impression that Harriet kind of died in babyhood. It does seem that the family didn't ever mention her, which, I mean, not that you can be certain, but, but it, it does lead you to like lean towards that as the reason why she would be kind of hidden from public view. And of course, this is interesting because Dickens writes extensively about characters who have additional needs. From very early on in his career, he writes about them 
very sympathetically, but also I, I think with a kind of awareness of the difficulties that they are likely to encounter. So, for example, in Barnaby Rudge, the title character has uh, some form of learning difficulty. And uh, yeah, I mean, Dickens, Dickens does, for the 19th century, write about, about characters who have additional needs, uh, I mean, extensively and in a very kind of open and inclusive and kind of, dare one say it, maybe like knowledgeable, loving way, because perhaps this was something that he'd experienced in his own family. It's quite tantalising, isn't it? Because as as you say, the, these are theories that maybe you, you can't really prove one way or the other with this and, for example, the experience in the, in the Blacking Factory, because there's no way that we can get in a time machine and go back and see. What do you think, when your book comes out, what do you think that other Dickens scholars and experts are going to make of the conclusions that you've drawn from the evidence that you found? I have tried very hard to kind of show where... I'm getting the ideas from, so there's lots of, there are many, many footnotes. I think the thing is that all biographies, you're always reaching to get into someone else's, like even someone you know, like, like a, a parent or a spouse or, or a sibling, you're always being surprised by what they do and you're always kind of discovering new things about them. And that's so much more the case for someone that you only really know from research and from reading. I suppose as much as anything, it's about I would like people, and I think I think academics are probably comfortable with this, maybe, to move away from ideas that we can be certain about Dickens's life, so that we can, so to stop talking about the Blacking Factory experience as if it is fact, because actually, maybe it isn't, and to kind of move away from this quite kind of rigid narrative of Dickens's life and there are things that people are very very kind of wedded to in terms of the biography that don't actually reflect what was going on so I mean the, with um with Ellen Turner young sexy actress this idea that no one knew about her people knew about her there are vicious vicious reports about her after Dickens's will, will is made public. So this idea that kind of, oh, this is an amazing secret, and we didn't find it out until, you know, oh, 1930. It's never been as well kept a secret as standard narrative of Dickens's life would, would have you believe. Well, I'm glad that you've circled us back round to Dickens's love life, as I promised uh, listeners earlier. Obviously, the story with Ellen Turner, as, as you say, People have kind of been well aware of this affair for quite a long time, but she wasn't necessarily the only person that Dickens had an extramarital affair with, was she? Can you tell us more about that? I mean, kind of slightly uh, against my will, because obviously, you know, uh, as a feminist, I want to I want to stand up for Catherine Dickens. Charles treated her appallingly, but it was never the best kind of marriage. He was slightly on the rebound. The thing is, it's kind of clear from early letters that actually he married her partly because, you know, her father was slightly senior to him in the same newspaper. They had all these literary connections in Scotland. They were a Scottish family, the Hogarths. And so they kind of, they'd known Walter Scott and they'd known Burns. 
And when he, he he writes this letter, like uh, announcing his 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 wedding to one of his uncles, and he's like, "Yeah, so it's really great. I'm going to marry this girl, and um, her father, blah 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 blah. Her father's like one of the most eminent literati of Edinburgh, and they know this person, and they know this person, and it's you know she's really kind of like squished in the middle of a sentence there, poor one. And he married her just before he became famous, and I honestly think he came to regret the marriage quite quickly. And although they have many children, many children, many, many, many children, like the poor, the poor woman is basically pregnant for years on end. They have 10 kids together and she also has at least two miscarriages. But we can quite soon and constantly find Dickens writing very flirtatious letters to other women, doing things like mesmerizing them. He's very, he's very, very super fashionable. In the 1840s, later on, not long after he's published David Copperfield, he gets this letter from his, his lost, lost first love, uh, Mariah Beadnell. And she's like, Oh, you know, I thought I would write to you because like, um, actually I sort of thought there were some bits of our like early relationship that I remember, I, I like recognized in David Copperfield. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, I totally based it on like, you know, partly on like my love for you. And then there's this whole series of letters between them and he's like, Oh, you can just, you can write to me at the house. Like, no one reads my mail here. Why don't we meet? I think we're going past flirtatious there into, you know, this is, this is a man who, who possibly has done this before and, you know, knows the uh, mechanics of, of how to have an extramarital affair in, in Victorian London. Uh, they, I mean, they, they certainly did meet and there's, uh, normally biographers are like, oh, they didn't have an affair because they met and, she put on tons of weight. She just had a baby, so I mean, fair enough, really. A burst of nostalgia that didn't come to anything. But actually, like they carry on corresponding on and off for quite a long time, like several years. They're, they're, we have occasional letters between them, and honestly, it seems completely possible that they did have an affair. And I guess that this was particularly relevant because it was in contrast to the image that he portrayed in public of himself of a happy family man. A father and a husband. Yes, he was, and he was very. I mean, particularly, um, particularly by the kind of eighteen fifties, he sets up this magazine called Household Words, and he promotes this image of himself as a very domestic kind of, you know, uxorious, domestically inclined man. That is as much for anything a kind of, you know, public relations exercise. Right? There's often these links between what he's writing in his fiction and the picture that he wants people to have of him and he's like like from right at the beginning of his career he's really really anxious about what people will say about him in the future like what people will say about him after he's dead you know he starts starts worrying about this age like 25 so yeah he 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 had very much kind of set up this idea that he was the ideal victorian family man two more salacious questions that I do need to ask you, which you explore in your book a bit, are questions about whether Dickens may have infected his wife and children with syphilis and a question of whether he may have had an affair with his sister-in-law. Can you tell us your take on those? So we're pretty confident that Dickens did have at least one sexually transmitted disease. There's this reference in in a letter to um, silver nitrate, uh, which 
in fact, even nowadays, um, is, is used to, to treat, uh, particularly gonorrhea, but at the time was used to treat other sexually transmitted diseases as well. I mean, I've been talking about how, how tentative we need to be about diagnosing people when, when people, people kind of spoke about illness differently and they kind of envisioned illness differently. But there are a number of health problems that members of the Dickens family have that are a little suggestive, let's say. The doctor who treats Catherine Dickens um, in 1851, from having been perfectly fine kind of one week, a fortnight later, Dickens is like, oh, yeah, she's really ill. I'm going to take her away to Great Malvern and she'll have the water cure there. And he kind of writes to the doctor that he's he's been put in touch with there. And he's like, well, I don't want to kind of put down on paper what's wrong with her. I'll talk to you when I see you. And I don't think she should like be, I don't think she should stay in your house. She should stay somewhere else. And turns out that the doctor was a big proponent of what was, what was called the water cure. So, you know, showers, hot and cold baths. You find a lot of um, Victorians having this. It was recommended for, for, for lots of, lots of kind of issues. But the doctor turns out to have specialised, at least in part, in the treatment of using the water cure for syphilis. And so this this sort of anxiety to get her up there, to kind of keep her hidden. I mean, again, as with, as with everything, I kind of collect together quite a lot of suggestive information over a period of a, about 20, 25 years. And... I am fairly confident that, in fact, yes, um, Catherine did, did contract syphilis. Whether that means that her husband gave it to her or whether he knowingly gave it to her, because the reason syphilis used to spread so easily is because it's very easy to have it and have no idea that you have it. Right. And a number of the children as well. So there's a son who dies very young, very suddenly, of an aortic aneurysm, which is... An absolutely classic death resulting from syphilis infection, um, like either a primary syphilis infection, so he picked it up himself, or uh, a, a congenital one, so one that he had uh, acquired in the room. It would have been quite soon. I mean, given that he was only about oh, 21, the timing there suggests if it was syphilis that caused it, then it's likely to have been contracted much, much earlier in his life than, than him contracting it himself. There's another brother who dies in his 20s, quite suddenly. There's the baby, so um, Dora, who dies, again, very, very suddenly as a eight-month-old. And you can't be certain with these things, but there are a lot of suggestive health issues and Dickens fudging over certain pieces of information. He's very keen, for example, not to publicise the fact that the son who dies of an aortic aneurysm has died of an aortic aneurysm. That's very carefully kind of airbrushed out of any of the reports. I am reasonably confident that that was actually, that was actually the problem. And more to the point, that that was why they broke up. That's why he tries to lock his wife up in a mental hospital, which, which it seems indeed that, that he did. It's not because she's mad or inconvenient it's because she you know she has an illness that is going to be be becoming like visibly quite an issue potentially it's something that would absolutely have people on her side 
Um, which quite a few people were. So there were people, Dickens' sister Letitia, for example, a couple of Dickens' friends. They were very much on Catherine's side after the separation, during and after the separation. You mentioned Georgina Hogarth, so Catherine's sister. So she's sort of left in charge of all the Dickens' kids the first time that Charles and Catherine go to America. She's 15. And they leave her. They're like, oh, you'll look after the kids, won't you, Georgina? And she sort of, she just likes days around i mean she didn't she didn't live with them 100 percent of the time but you know she's there she's there a lot the odd thing is though that when charles and catherine break up and catherine leaves the house georgina stays and everyone's like this is a bit odd because she's not it's not like she's very it's, she's not that old she's you know only about she's in her mid-30s i think at this point so she's not it's not as if she's you know, past past the age of having a reputation to, to guard. And it's actually, it is really, really weird that she did it. And people, the, the um, newspapers at the time are like, this is strange. And one of the rumours that seems to have circulated is that the reason Catherine had left was because Charles and Georgina were having an affair. I spoke earlier about how Dickens loves to kind of throw extra fuel on the fire with the idea that the fire then burns, the, the rumour fire then burns itself out. And I think it is interesting that the breakup seems to have happened sort of before all the other rumours get going. So before there are the rumours about the actresses and uh, the, the rumours about um, Dickens and his, his sister-in-law. And it is a bit weird because... Dickens, Dickens keeps making things worse. He does this thing where he does this kind of carefully orchestrated press release to all the London newspapers, which is basically this long statement about his marriage, which kind of mentions the fact that there are all these other rumours going on. And of course, what he does in his will is that he fans them again. So he has this, this, long, this long paragraph that's all about how great Georgina is and how she's been fantastic. And you, you can see him kind of just stirring things to keep to keep that alive. And I think he did that because he didn't want people to realise what the issue actually was. He didn't want people to realise why Catherine had actually left him, that it was it was because he invaded her, um, essentially. I can't prove that. But uh, again, it's actually astonishing when you see how much effort he seems to put into keeping both those really quite... You know, differently but, but you know, they're, they're both damaging rumours but the fact that he he does seem to be promoting them almost over a long period of time and definitely promotes them in his will he has to have been pushing those rumours feeding those rumours for a reason and this would be I guess the reason and so finally why does any of this matter when we get to Dickens's work, should any of this change the way that we read Dickens at all? Do you think? Yes. Whether whether all of it, I, I, I guess, is a partly a decision for each reader. I, I, I suppose things like the death of Harriet Dickens, you know, the fact that Dickens, as a teenager, does does lose a younger sibling, I think, does change the the way that we we would read quite quite a lot of his fictions. Actually, there's very much been this trend to say. Oh, the child deaths are just, you know, they're sentimental and they're rubbishy. And oh, this is just like saccharine, Victorian, like, you know, painting by numbers, basically. And the discovery that this is actually quite 
personal and that possibly, plausibly, the kind of prominence of characters with, with additional needs might, might also be a personal thing. I think that's something that should feed into your reading of, of Dickens. The question, I suppose, of, you know, does it matter if he was a child labourer or not? Does, you know, does it, does it change our reading of David Copperfield? Does it change our understanding of Dickens? I guess I don't know. It's, I, and I know, I know that for a lot of people, Dickens's own life story, it's something that they really kind of cling to, that they've, people with difficult childhoods, it's a rope to hang on to, like it's a it's a nourishing thing to know or think you know that he went through this kind of tragedy and this trauma and came out the other side and became like one of the greatest Victorian novelists. That's that's something that really speaks very deeply to a lot of people. And I guess I'm a little bit wary of kind of snatching that away. But the story the story is still there. Just because a story isn't true doesn't mean that it can't tell you truths, um, I suppose. But because Dickens clearly kind of gave this information to Forster, because he, he kind of set Forster up to tell a particular version of events, and that has been the dominant thing that people know about Dickens, and where that has been so influential in our, our kind of cultural understanding of someone, I think it is important to round out the picture. And he draws on his own life so much. Like whole aspects of you know, his, his fiction are kind of coming straight from his childhood. And I think if he were a less autobiographical writer, his biography wouldn't matter as much. And if he hadn't carefully manipulated or tried to manipulate his image, his posthumous image, if he hadn't been kind of working so hard on that all the way through his through his career, which it seems pretty clear that he was, I think that the corrective biography, uh, a biography which offers more information, I, I guess, wouldn't be as necessary. But I think that maybe, maybe it is. If his life is deemed to have informed his work if it is it is part and parcel of our idea of him as a man as a writer then we probably need to have some more facts even with a fiction writer i i, I think that the truth matters i think that it gives us a foundation to meet him from essentially to be surer in our interpretation of of who he is and, and what he's what he's writing That was Helena Kelly. The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens is out now, published by Icon Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.